1919, the United States government made it illegal to manufacture, transport, or sell intoxicating liquors by ratifying the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And that amendment was so effective and successful that the consumption of alcohol immediately ceased and Americans never drank again. No, of course, it was an unmitigated failure and had the exact opposite effect as was intended. But over the 13 years that the 18th Amendment was in effect, the way we drink, what we drink, who drinks, and who controls the flow of our sweet, precious booze be permanently changed. In this episode of HPH, we're taking a look at the creation of that amendment, its ultimate failure, and of course, we'll be imbibing along the entire journey. So, it's time for you to grab a drink of your own, settle in, and enjoy this episode of 100 Proof History, titled Prohibition, Potent Potables and Politics. This is 100 Proof History. We're drinking whiskey and talking history. So, grab a drink, sit back, relax, and enjoy a few laughs as the guys talk about all the horrible things people do to each other. Here are your hosts... Chris and Greg. What is up, all you summer boys and girls? I hope you're having fun in the sun, but staying safe. Being sure to always wear SPF 30 or greater to block out those baddie UVF rays and treating any sunburn you may have with a silky smooth aloe vera ointment. As always... Leather Daddy Greg is here to rub either one into your back and other hard-to-reach areas. Chris, how are you doing? Doing great, man. I love that. It's so great that you do that for people because there there are people who um, humans are afraid to touch, you know, because maybe they have a few warts, little some weird hair things going on, a lot of folds, a lot of places you gotta like tuck your hand up in. SARS-CoV-2. Yeah, SARS-CoV-2, we have that too. And, you know, just all the stuff, all the reasons my wife says she won't touch me anymore, basically. But uh, that's a service you provide. We're damn lucky that you do it, so thank you. As long as I get to wear my leather, I'm happy. <laughs> Chris, how's your summer been? Fantastic. It's been great. Got some sun, had some fun. Now I'm back here to tell you guys some history stuff, uh, which I am excited to to be doing I'm, I'm just so happy to be podcasting again yeah. <laughs> did you have some drinks oh i had so many fucking drinks i barely sobered up uh you know i got that third dwi so won't be going anywhere anytime soon so it's plenty of time to study history um how about you did you have a good summer lots of drinks i've had a lot of drinks chris <laughs> I hope that answers your question. <laughs> it does. <laughs> but you know who wasn't having drinks? Who's that? People that actually followed the law in our story today on Prohibition. Oh! What a fucking transition. Did it. Let's go. We fucking did Let's it. Let's go. Talking about Prohibition. Our source today is Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition by Daniel Oakland. Uh, it's a very solid book. Enjoyed it. Tells the story very thoroughly. You're going to know a lot of names if you read that book that we are not going to get into very much today, but they, they were players in the story. Uh, if you want to learn more, I highly suggest it. And there's 
actually a very cool documentary by Ken Burns on the subject called simply Prohibition, made back in uh, 2011. Good stuff. It's actually really good and features heavily the author of our main source, Daniel Okrent. Well, Chris, are you ready to get into this story? I suppose we can do it. Why not? Give me one good reason why not, Greg. Because this podcast sucks? Oh, shit. I'm going to do it anyway. I got nothing else going on. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Same, same. Our story begins with the founding of the United States itself. You might have this image of the founders as uptight churchgoers who would condemn you to hell for so much as eating a half rack of TGI Friday's famous Jack Daniel ribs, but the truth is Americans have always been drunks. The pilgrims came on a ship carrying 10,000 gallons of wine and three times as much beer as water. Benjamin Franklin once came up with 228 different ways to say someone was drunk, including being, quote, juicy, end quote, and, quote, thawed, end quote. I like the English, you know. Yeah. They use things like chaired. (laughs) Like, you can use any noun. Yeah. Yeah, like, absolutely floored, chaired. TV'd. I mean, just, <laughs> just say some, something. If it's something you do when you're drunk, like if it involves drinking, it can be a part of it, right? Yeah, it doesn't even have to be. He's potatoed. <laughs> Absolutely potatoed. <laughs> it's like, oh, fuck, that does make sense. Is that an Irish slur? Is that what's happening here? Those fucking Mick bastards? I mean, it could be anything. <laughs> Literally name something. Butt plug. He's he's beyond butt plug right now. <laughs> Say that in an English accent. I'd be like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, I get it. Makes sense. He's pretty wasted. That's <laughs> yeah. right. That guy must be fucking hammered. By 1763, there were over 150 commercial rum distilleries in New England. In the countryside, farmers kept barrels of hard cider by the door and would chug a ladleful every time they came through the door. We kind of did this in my household growing up. You know, we grew up in the, the Midwest region, but my parents were teetotalers. You know, they didn't drink, so it was just a bucket of egg salad. You just come in and get a big mm. spoonful of egg salad, you know? Every day after a hard day working in the fields, you're just drenched in sweat and you just get this egg salad running down your face, you know, because you're just taking it all in, and it's so good. It actually ruined my first marriage um, because I didn't realize this wasn't a tradition that other people had. And so my first wife did not appreciate it. And I may have made it worse by not realizing it was the egg salad. I thought she just didn't like my egg salad. So I spent like hours and hours trying to perfect the recipe in our efficiency apartment. And so when she left me, she said she could taste eggs in her nightmares. That's when I realized that maybe I was a little strange for, for doing that. There's there's someone for everyone, you know. (laughs) Current wife loves egg salad. Loves it. Just smear it all over her naked body and just eat it off of her. Oh, (laughs) God! This is the whitest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) Please continue with the story. Will do. George Washington owned a whiskey still. John Adams started every day with a hard cider. Thomas Jefferson collected wines and distilled his own rye, and James Madison drank a pint of whiskey every single day. My man. 
By the 1820s, liquor was so easy to find that it was cheaper than tea. And by the 1830s, the average American drank seven gallons of alcohol a year, which is equal to every man, woman, and child in the country drinking 1.7 bottles of 80-proof liquor a week. Told you I don't have a problem, wife. <laughs> I know, man. That's fucking crazy. Mom, dad, parishioner, I fucking told you. <laughs> Traffic cop. God. <laughs> <Yeah>. Boss. <laughs> Boss's husband. Boss's husband's boyfriend. <laughs> Uncle told you. Owner of that daycare I crashed my car into. Here to pick up my boy. <laughs> the boy is the 45-year-old guy who runs the daycare. <laughs> Dad, god damn it. <laughs> Let's play catch. We never play catch when you're growing up. I'm sorry, son. Oh, to make up for lost time. <laughs> Just bawling my eyes out on the hood of my fucking T-bird. <laughs> oh, God. REO Speedwagon's playing in the background. God damn it, Dad. I got the glove and ball. Your, your glove's down there in the floorboard. Just wipe off the vomit. <laughs> wipe it off. It's still good. It's leather. Made to stand the test of time. What is all this shit that you spilled all over the place? Oh, I thought you'd want some of this egg salad I made for you, son. <laughs> oh... No, 1.7 bottles of 80-proof liquor is like 90 bottles a fucking year. And that's insane. Yeah, and that's seven gallons. That's seven gallons of alcohol. So just the alcohol content of what they're drinking. For instance, today, if you just drink beer and you're drinking seven gallons of alcohol a year, that'd be like 2,800 beers in a year. Hell yeah. <laughs> you fucking challenge me, motherfucker. Hell yeah. In the late 1830s, however, a movement began to grow within the churches to convince men to stop drinking, because being absolutely smashed all the time was having a somewhat negative effect on their lives. It began as what was known as the Temperance Movement, and men joined organizations known as the Washingtonians, where they swore total, with a capital T, abstinence from alcohol. And that capital T gave birth to the title of teetotaler. And I didn't know that. Before we start researching this, I didn't either. I thought it was like tea, like you drink, like I'm not going to have liquor, I'm just going to drink tea. But no, it's tea, yeah. total abstinence. Yeah. Tea time. Yeah, that's what I thought. My uncle called it tea tea time. <laughs> <laughs> Your uncle Ricky Martin? Did you see that story? No. Uh, Ricky Martin had an affair with his nephew. What? Yeah. And is now facing 50 years in prison for incest. His nephew was an adult. It was not pedophilia. But yeah, his nephew uh, and him had an affair. And his nephew reported him to the cops. So yeah, he's facing 50 years in a pound-me-in-the-ass Puerto Rican prison. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. No. Very non-sequitur. I did not know that. He is definitely living La Vida Loca. Great. <laughs> mm. 
Anyway, teetotalers swore abstinence from alcohol, but just like the sexual abstinence pledge they make Midwest kids take in high school, the teetotal pledge proved equally as hard to keep. Some of us kept that promise even after we got married, just saying. Yeah, some of us couldn't help but keep the promise. (laughs) (laughs) One of the leaders of the Washingtonian movement, Bartholomew Goh, would later backslide and would go on a six-day bender and would be caught in a Manhattan brothel. He would claim he'd been drugged. Classic. That's such Fucking an easy classic, out. Classic, dude. Come on. Come on. I'd, every I'd time. I admire the guy. I admire it. <laughs> you know, every time I get caught sitting in an airport bathroom and I reach my foot under the stall and touch another dude's foot and he freaks the fuck out, I'm like, oh, I was drugged. I'm sorry. I don't know what I'm doing. You know? <laughs> Bartholomew Goh would go on to regain his sobriety and would continue his work promoting abstinence. The movement began to spread throughout the country, and in 1851, the mayor of Portland, Maine, Neil Dow, convinced the Maine state legislature to outlaw the selling and manufacture of liquor within that state. Other states loved that idea and followed suit, but the people of those states rebelled. In Maine in particular, in 1855, a crowd of Irish immigrants started a riot that led to the state militia killing one man and wounding another seven. By the end of the 1850s, every state that had enacted a version of the Maine law had repealed it. But there was still a large contingent of the population that was crying out for some form of prohibition. And in the early days of the temperance movement, the loudest voices came from one particular group. Women. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Chris dared me to say that. (laughs) When it came to booze, women definitely got the crappy, no-fun end of the stick. The men got hammered, partied in saloons, and spent all the money while the women were at home trying to make ends meet, take care of the family, all while suffering domestic violence at the hands of their drunk husbands. These women never got to go to ladies' night or chill with their gal pals at the wineries. The only relief they got came in the form of things like Pinkham's Elixir, which was an herbal blend designed to relieve menstrual pains, but it had the added bonus of being 20% alcohol. A Pirate's Bay coconut rum of sorts. Yeah. If you will. If you yeah. Will. So, you know, every time my wife's on her period, she makes herself a Mai Tai, goes out to the community pool, you know, just... She's like, she needs her alone time. She's going to sit in a hot tub with some rum, you know, a little 40-proof liquor. Just, mm-hmm. you know, it helps her. And she comes back refreshed and recharged, you know, glowing, a little sweaty. You know, she says she immediately needs a shower to, you know, just get the smell of the hot tub off of her, is what she says. Hot tubs do that. They do all those things. Yeah. yeah. She's ripped her bikini bottom somehow on a bush. <laughs> or I don't know. It's not. It's not real clear. Yeah. Something about throws of passion fruit. <laughs> she keeps telling me that plan B pills really help her menstrual pain, so she has to go pick one of those up in the morning. You know, typical women problems. I mean, that's what she tells me when I'm out of town and I see that $46.38 charge from CVS early on a Saturday morning. <laughs> I'm like, well, what's that about? No, it just makes me feel better. It helps hangovers, just like my doll. Yes, ma'am. Okay, sounds good. Do they they have a four-pack? 
go ahead and get a bought discount. You sure are buying them a lot. Especially when I'm out of town. I'm not there to comfort her and make her feel better. That's why. That's what it is. I'll preemptively buy them these days when I go out of town. Yeah. Just leave it on the nightstand. (laughs) It's weird how it just always lines up with her menstrual cycle. Just strange. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. (laughs) Sometimes it doesn't, though. I hadn't really thought of that. Mm. In 1873, a preacher stopped near Cincinnati and gave a sermon to a group of women urging them to use prayer to rid their town of saloons and shitty chili with, like, cinnamon in it for some reason. Don't they put their chili on spaghetti? Yeah, and it looks awful. It's like this weird light brown color. It just looks gross. Mm, I don't want to talk about it. Okay. The next day, 75 women marched through freezing December temperatures, knelt in front of a saloon, and began to pray and sing hymns. Over the following few days, they did it at every saloon in town, and that became national news. Their movement spread like wildfire and led to the creation of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which was led by Frances Willard, a woman so dedicated to the cause that she even gave her dog the god-awful name of Hibby, which was short for Prohibition. And if I was alive at that time, I'd report her to the SPCA, like, immediately. For animal cruelty. Oh, yeah. Stupid fucking name. Don't make your dog name about your politics, lady. Keep politics out of dog names. That's all I'm saying. The WCTU made big strides politically and eventually convinced every state to teach temperance education in their public schools. They would teach it three times a week. You had to learn about the evils of alcohol and would teach just absolute nonsense like... You start drinking, you could spontaneously combust. It's fucking bullshit, man. I, I don't know. I think that one might be true. It just yeah? it's one of those it has a delayed effect. Like <laughs> okay. the next morning. Uh, after you've drank a lot of booze and maybe had some jack in the box tacos. <laughs> and then you wake up and spontaneously Well. Makes sense. I don't want to be too grotesque. Yeah. Spontaneously, egg salad just coming out of everywhere. You're really obsessed with egg salad this episode. <laughs> I don't know. Do not understand. <laughs> I don't either. Um, I was thinking it was just like a misunderstanding. Like the school marms at the bar, and she says, Well, I've heard alcohol can make you spontaneous combust. And this dude with a big, thick, twirly mustache and his bowler hat and goes, Well, madam, it certainly makes you hotter. now while all of this was happening american tastes and alcohol were undergoing a dramatic shift when settlers first arrived in the country they brought beer and that was typically two percent alcohol but then as they began to grow grain americans found it easier to produce and consume much stronger liquors However, in the mid-19th century, a massive wave of German immigrants came to the United States and brought with them the recipes and methods for making actually good-tasting beer. They showed up and saw a sea of Natty Light cans. They're like, oh, God, what is wrong with this fucking country? What is this godless nation? In 1850, Americans had consumed 36 million gallons of beer. By 1890, 
that number was 855 million gallons. A big part of this explosion came when a young brewer named Adolphus Bush figured out that pasteurization kept beer fresh and he was able to ship it all over the country. These immigrants formed the United States Brewers Association and conducted all of their meetings in German. When they saw that the women were preaching out against alcohol, their reaction was to claim that it was hard liquor that was truly evil, and beer was nothing more than liquid bread. I'll tell you what, my gut says the same thing. You know, when I go to the pool and it's just sticking out there, it's just all those beers, man, I'm telling you. Mm -hmm. The WCTU wasn't having any of that nonsense, and they used the proliferation of beer and the Germans' secret language meetings as a reason to begin to speak out against immigration. I told my wife the same thing about bourbon and how I was basically, uh, you know, just eating my vegetables. Yeah, it's corn. fucking primarily corn. <laughs> but uh, she didn't buy that. So I was like, well, what about all this gin? Look at all these <laughs> herbs that it says on the back of the bottle that's in here. You know, I feel like I'm doing good. Doing a lot better than just going on my grain alcohol, my 98 percenter. <laughs> I'm actually getting some sustenance in my diet these days. Babe, you've been telling me to cut back on carbs. There's no carbs in this. Zero carbs. No gluten. Nothing. Just, you know, just pure goodness. Natural goodness. And little known fact, the brewers were shrewd businessmen who figured out unique ways to grow their fortunes. One was the establishment of company-owned saloons. For a minimum investment, a man could run his own saloon that was purchased, furnished, decorated, and supplied by a brewer. In exchange, that saloon would only sell that one particular brand of beer. These saloons also commonly featured free lunches, which consisted of foods like salami, sardines, clams, pickles, pretzels, and crackers, all of which were salty enough to convince the customer that maybe he should have a pint or beer or two to wash it down. I'd be the jackass that went there and just, uh, get a water, and just... And because it's 1880-whatever, they just beat the shit out of me and leave me a bloody pulp in the mud street outside. But free lunch, baby. That's all yeah, I'm here for. I don't think for. it would fly back then either. <laughs> no. I do... i kind of nostalgic for this time I never lived in. Like, I want this to exist now where you can just go get a free lunch and have a few pints of beer at a company-owned brewery. Like, you just go to an intersection and there's the Pabst and the Coors and, you know... The Miller, and then you have the microbrewery, so when I'm feeling all hipstery, I can go over there and have some raspberry Hefeweizen or something. This is bullshit. I hate having choices. Fuck this. I mean, you gotta pay for the beer. Yeah. You know, I know you gotta pay for the you beer. You go to a strip club, they have free lunches. I'm not allowed in those establishments anymore as a part of my parole. Oh, okay. The WCTU made great strides towards prohibition, but towards the end of the 19th century, they were patted on the head and told... That's cute, honey, but the men will take it from here, see? That's their words, not mine. Greg dared me to say that, the, the, the thing about the, that's cute, honey. I, I, I was uh, very offended by it. Throughout Southern and Midwestern Baptist and Methodist churches, prohibition became the most popular sermon topic. Not Jesus. Prohibition. Go figure. From this came the group known as the Anti-Saloon League, or ASL. ASL. That's what that's from. <laughs> I saw my uncle on a Minecraft server years ago typing ASL question mark, ASL question mark over and over again. <laughs> but he wouldn't tell me what it meant. 
I knew it had to be some sort of exclusive club. Yeah, okay. that's what it was. <laughs> okay, finally makes sense. <laughs> Which I'm surprised that your uncle Ricky Martin did that. You know, I thought it'd be in Spanish, whatever that version of ASL is. Mm-hmm. Well, the ASL had a few early leaders, but were soon taken over by a Ned Flanders-looking motherfucker named Wayne Wheeler. This dude was an anti-booze dynamo. While the brewers and distillers were busy fighting each other and trying to claim that either beer or liquor was the bigger evil, Wheeler was unifying the prohibition cause. His view was he didn't give a shit what your other political views were. If you said you were an anti-alcohol politician, known as a dry, uh, with her opponents obviously being labeled as wets, he would throw the ASL's massive body of church-going voters behind you. And thus, the ASL supported progressives seeking workers' rights and suffragists seeking the vote for women, and at the same time backed conservatives who thought workers were replaceable cogs and women should stay at home and take care of the family. But one thing they all had in common was uh, they were all pretty racist. They all thought that alcohol was a problem created by immigrants and loved to point out that a great deal of the whiskey distilleries were owned by Jewish families. Both used it to further oppress the black population. The super racist conservatives conjured up images of roving bands of drunken black men committing crimes, or worse, daring to vote. Oh, I never. <laughs> the still racist but less overt about it progressives agreed that drunk black men committed more crimes. One progressive even argued that liquor could turn black men into cannibals but they also said it was the responsibility of the white man to take away the alcohol and help the black population climb the social ladder. You know, maybe not the the best moment in American history for the white people. We're not, we're not doing it so hot, no matter what side of the, the aisle you're on there. Not even close to the worst, though. <laughs> no, definitely not. By the 1900s, the ASL had become a formidable force by basically controlling who and who was not elected based solely on whether they were a dry or a wet. But there was still a massive roadblock for prohibition. By the year 1910, the U.S. government was drawing more than $200 million in tax revenue from alcohol, which amounted to 71% of all internal revenue. But you know what the dries? They had an idea. You could probably get rid of that alcohol tax if they started taxing the income of American citizens. And so, through the hard work of Wayne Wheeler and the ASL, in 1913, the United States ratified the 16th Amendment, which established a national income tax. We did it, fellas. Thank you. Oh, such a, such a great moment. We're so happy for you that you did that to us, you fucking assholes. It may be because I like to drink, but I, it's also because I've read the story and researched it that these people behind Prohibition, they were just a bunch of dicks. And I'm not, not a fan. Just go ahead and put my two cents out there. These guys... Fucking uh, hot take. Holy hey. shit. <laughs> yes. I don't know. I don't feel like most of America would support me on that. I think they'd be like, no, restrict my rights. Make me wear a mask. I don't fucking care. Fucking love it. <laughs> The 1916 elections were a big win for the Dries, as most of the candidates backed by the ASL won, and several individual states passed laws prohibiting the sale and manufacture of alcohol. 
their super moist, wet opponents, led primarily by the Brewers Association, had kind of shit the bed when it came to actually mounting an opposition, and they massively fucked up when they went hard against the idea of allowing women to vote. Read the room, fellas. You can see where this is trending. You're like, ah, no, stay home, ladies. Let the, let the fellas have their beers. Fucking Germans. One historian later put it best when he said, quote, The non-drinkers had been organizing for 50 years, and the drinkers had no organization whatsoever. They had been too busy drinking. End quote. In late 1917, Congress passed the 18th Amendment, which put a federal ban on the sale, transport, and manufacture of intoxicating liquors. It would take two years to get 36 state legislatures. It would take two years to get 36 state legislatures to agree to ratify it, but on January 16, 1919, only 395 days after it had passed Congress, the amendment was officially ratified and made a part of the U.S. Constitution. It was set to take effect on January 17, 1920. Right after our boys get home from the horrors of war. The horrors of war? Horrors of oh. war. <laughs> they gotta fucking deal with this bullshit. I know, right? Just, yeah, put my hand down, it was in my best friend's face. It took a mortar round to his fucking goddamn gullet. You're telling me I can't have a beer? This is bullshit. I fought for your mm. rights, God damn it. How does that work? If if someone passes an amendment that uh it's not great, but it's still it's part of the Bill of Rights or I guess the Constitution, not the Bill of Rights, but it's part of the Constitution, did you still fight for that right? No. Okay. <laughs> well, a big reason, speaking of, a big reason that the eighteenth amendment was ratified so quickly by the states was the US involvement in World War One. The Brewers, who were fighting Prohibition, were mostly German and were unapologetically supportive of their homeland. Meanwhile, in the U.S., the Germans were so despised that sauerkraut was relabeled as Liberty Cabbage. Berlin Street in Cincinnati was renamed Woodrow Street, and an Alabama senator faced no repercussions when he called for the summary execution of every German in America. Thought fucking Freedom Fries was extreme. Man, they like fucking kill them. Go get them, boys. Oh, they did that too. Uh, yeah. You don't remember the Sikh fucking gas station workers getting just mob killed after 9-11? Had uh, nothing to do with Islam or uh, definitely not 9-11. Those dudes were getting killed by these redneck fucks. Yeah. We didn't progress from here. We were supposed to at least... In 9-11, we're supposed to act horrified by it. We're like, <gasps> I can't believe they did that. That is shocking that some inbred motherfucker would have that backwards thought and go do that. Back then, everybody's like, yeah, he's right. Kill all the fucking Germans. Eat my Liberty Cabbage. Liberty Cabbage. How much fucking sauerkraut are you eating that you need to rename it because of the war? Probably a decent amount in German areas. Yeah? Well, I would think so. I like sauerkraut, so I guess I can't judge him too much. It's good on a hot dog and stuff. Fucking hot take from HBH Chris over here. <laughs> good on a hot dog and stuff. <laughs> and stuff. Well, German potato salad is fucking trash. How about that? Got him. First it on him. Take your German potato salad back to Germany, Hitler. Yeah, Hitler. <laughs> 
that listens to this podcast. <laughs> do what he says. Oh, I am bringing the heat today, baby. <laughs> These uh, UV B rays have they've been cooking my brain too. So I'm right there with you. <laughs> Feeling very low E. Yeah, today very low, extremely low T. Oh, always very yes. low T, but also low energy. I'm limping into this. I'm limping into this for sure. You're doing good, man. You're doing good. I'll tell man, you what thanks. helped me. What helped me? I saw it on Tucker. Um, you should tan your genitals. Oh, tan genitals. Yeah. You know, like I was talking about the community pool in our apartment complex. I should go down there, just go spread eagle on the diving board and just let God's light tan my balls. and brings the T and the E levels right up. Hmm. I've also been banned from the pool and uh, got another charge pending. But, you know, whatever. How much can they stack at this point in time? Pending. You don't even have to put that on a job application. I know. They don't know. They don't fucking know. Pending. <laughs> Who knows? Might not stick this time. In October of 1919, the Volstead Act, named after Minnesota Representative Andrew Volstead, made the 18th Amendment official law. Under pressure from Wayne Wheeler, Volstead and his committee labeled intoxicating liquor as anything that was more than 0.5% alcohol, which was such a stupid low amount, it might as well have been zero. For instance, German chocolate cake contains about 0.62% alcohol. And this also included the aforementioned sauerkraut. Yeah. And even Worcestershire sauce. Stupid. Pretty fucking stupid. Can't put sauerkraut on top of my cake and douse it in some fucking Worcestershire sauce and just go to town. Because fucking Andrew Volstead. You'd be drunker than a bandit after that. <laughs> Can't let you get drunk as a bandit. You'd be doing bandit stuff. Speaking of hot takes, German chocolate cake, also trash. Get that shit okay. off my cake. Get get it off. You keep having no. hot takes on things that aren't like super controversial. I don't care <laughs> that you think these things. Like, oh, you don't like, like that. Cool. We're supposed to be shock jocks. We're supposed to be Skip Bayless and, you know, the other guy, you're, you're uh, Shannon like, Sharp. <laughs> you're supposed to be screaming yeah, at you're me. You're acting like you're saying something that like 98% of people are going to disagree with. And it's just yeah. like, oh, okay. You have a preference. Neat. <laughs> no. You've learned nothing from watching TV and yelling at each other. You're supposed to be, no matter what side I take, you're supposed to take the other side and just scream at me. I won't be fake, Chris, outside of my marriage and it, its implied sexuality. I won't be fake. <laughs> the law did allow for people to keep the alcohol they already owned, and it did not forbid the consumption of alcohol. And there were a couple of other lo- what? Consumption. <laughs> you wish. Freudian slip, right? Everybody likes their own brand, Greg. <laughs> That's disgusting. <laughs> it's not a fart, Chris. Sometimes you don't have a napkin. What are you supposed to do? Okay. I flick it off like a booger on the wall of the museum. <laughs> As if you're, you're a two-year-old walking through the museum just flicking bugs. <laughs> no, you're, you're slinging. You're like Spider-Man in there. <laughs> Hitting off fucking webbing. Sir, we're going to have to ask you to leave the Holocaust Museum. It had nothing to do with what I'm looking at. I just just had a thought, okay? I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) 
I saw the ovens, realized I've been cooking this one up for a few days. I just, but it has nothing to do with dead people. Just <laughs> thinking of how hot Liam Neeson looked in Schindler's List. I imagined him in that in that little red coat. <laughs> him in the coat. And that's it. <laughs> I just thought of his heroicism. That's what turned me on, the heroicism. Yeah. He made a sacrifice, man. I don't know if I could do it. I don't know if I could do that, what he did, so. I'm I'm kind of a hero for saluting him in that way, I think. Sir, you were staring deeply into a replica of Himmler's SS cap. (laughs) The skull and crossbones. It wasn't that, I'm telling you. I was using my imagination. (laughs) Please don't call the cops. I can't. Not again. I don't know how many concurrent charges I can can run. (laughs) By the way, you guys hiring... I'm looking for work. Like an after-hour security guard. It's <laughs> just me and nobody else. I, you know, someone who you could trust with access to the security cameras. You know, just I'd even clean up when I was through. Through what? Yeah, even with my shift. It was, you know, just in the break room. The break room. <laughs> yeah. Have my German chocolate cake covered in sauerkraut and Worcestershire sauce. <laughs> I eat it every day. Just like Oma used to make. Who? Oh, n- nothing. <laughs> okay. Well, the Volstead Act did allow for people to keep the alcohol they already owned. It did not forbid the consumption of alcohol. And there were a couple of other loopholes that would soon be exploited. Yeah, and this was pretty crazy because you had all the... uh the well-off people, they could buy up as much as they wanted during this mm-hmm. interim before it took effect. And so you had like clubs buying up so much that it would last them and their members like 14 years, which was basically the end of prohibition. And they could legally consume it that whole time. So it was pretty crazy that this was ending. They gave people a heads up and they could just stockpile like a motherfucker and legally drink it. Yeah, no, you're you're right. It was all the rich guys, and they had these giant wine cellars, you know, just last forever, especially politicians, the guys who voted to enact prohibition. They're like, okay, let's, yeah, let's do this. It'll be fun for everybody, right? And just stockpiling. Wait, what do you mean? Politicians don't actually vote for their beliefs and instead vote for their own self-interests? What? No, 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 no. What? That's, no. What the fuck did you just say, Chris? Back then. Back then, of course. Oh, okay. Not but, now, though. Yeah. No, no. They These all guys... believe what they're saying. Yes. Okay, okay, okay. Well, on January 17th, 1920, the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the Anti-Saloon League got together and they celebrated Prohibition. And you know what? To their credit, many Americans, particularly those who lived in the middle of the country, did begin to drink less. Alcohol-related deaths and arrests for public intoxication dropped in 1920. Welch's grape juice and Coca-Cola saw record profits, and even the guy who wrote Take Me Out to the Ball Game created a new hit titled I Never Knew I Had a Wonderful Wife Until the Town Went Dry. Which, I, I get it. I get it. I, I understand where that song's coming from, because like if they got rid of booze in my town, my wife would probably stay home more often. I'm like, you're, you're pretty great, you know? You're not out partying every night. You know, just staying out till 2 a.m., bringing home your friends' 
Trevor and Rich and tell me I had to sleep on the couch because they need a place to crash, you know, just, I think we'd, we'd get to know each other just a little bit better if booze was outlawed. That makes sense. Yeah. Yes, Greg, Prohibition had arrived. Would it be a smashing success that forever deterred the people of the United States from drinking again? Or would it be an abject failure that showed that no one has the right to tell an individual how to live his life? Or her. Oh, yep, yep, sorry. Sorry, yes. Or her. Or her. Yes, Greg, we're all counting on you to tell us about it. After we take a break to freshen our drinks. See you on the other side, listener. We are back from break. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Hope you went, got yourself another drink. The second part of this story, maybe you got yourself a particular type of drink, one we like to enjoy. While we're talking about how drinking was illegal for 14 years in American history, and that would be our second half seltzer. 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 Three, two, one, pop it up. Oh, we're both riding the Truly bus today. Wish I was riding the Bang bus back in the day with that Cuban boy <laughs> that had that big old fucking mole on his dick. Remember I don't, that shit? No. <laughs> oh, you never watched Bang bus? I don't think I did. Well, we've got our second half seltzers we're going to enjoy, but uh, you can't enjoy a second half. Until someone tells you the second half. And for that, we turn to our glorious God Emperor main host, Greg. Greg, are you ready to tell these people what happened? Yes, worst lead-in ever. I thought that was great. I built you up. Second half. Half of the second half. (laughs) Second half of the story. All right. Yeah, the most important half. Let me get a what what. (laughs) built you up these people are like oh i can't wait this is the good part because this guy's doing it this amazing hero of podcasting is about to tell me what happened see okay okay (laughs) simmer down everyone (laughs) well at this point prohibition was the law of the land but while the drives were celebrating the wets were still getting absolutely plastered the year that passed between the ratification of the 18th amendment and the day it actually took effect allowed for the establishment of elaborate and expansive distribution networks. In the first seven months of 1920, over 900,000 cases of liquor worked their way from Canadian distilleries to the city of Windsor, Ontario, which sits directly across from Detroit, Rock City. Oh, and by the way, Chris, you may not know this. Hmm. Windsor, Ontario, in Canada? Mm-hmm. You take a bridge out of Detroit to get there. You take that bridge south. To get out of Detroit? And into Canada. That is that is crazy. I did not know yeah. that. It confused me. I was like, you take the bridge south to what? Like, where's the end of that sentence? But no, you go south to get out of America into Canada. Correct. That is fucking nuts. Yeah, me and some buddies uh, went to a baseball game up there a few years ago and 
talked to some people that were from Windsor, mm-hmm. and that's where I learned that. Huh. That little known fact, if you will, oh, that you have to go you. south out of Detroit to get into Canada. I'm like, what the fuck? This makes no sense. I pulled out a knife, kicked me out of the bar, got arrested. <laughs> Whole big thing. But now I know that little, uh, <laughs> a little factoid. I didn't think I was going to learn anything today, and here we are. You're welcome. That's why you're the best host. Thank you. I accept. (laughs) Well, from there, the booze was smuggled on boats across the river into the U.S. and distributed to Chicago and then to the East Coast. In Washington, D.C., President Warren G. Harding had a personal stash worth over $1,800. And that's old-timey money. That's not today's money. Yeah, it's like a billion dollars today. Mm-hmm. That's why they called him the regulator. Warren G. <laughs> I like it. Well, and he doled out that generous stash to his guests during his regular poker nights. The Secretary of the Treasury, Andrew Mellon, was the man responsible for making sure that the Volstead Act was enforced. But he also happened to be a majority owner of the old Overholt Rye Distillery. Well, Chris and I have enjoyed many of their products. Yeah, get the bottle and bond. It's good shit. Yeah, by many. Like, the, I think there's the, two. That one. Yeah. <laughs> there's bottle and bond and not. <laughs> and the regular. Yeah. But I've enjoyed it many times, you put it that way. <laughs> Together, they put an unqualified idiot named Roy Haynes in charge of the Prohibition Department and did almost nothing to finance that department. To enforce prohibition, the federal government had a total of 1,500 field agents who were woefully underpaid, and the Coast Guard, which consisted of 55 ships to patrol the entire U.S. coastline. And woefully underpaid is a big factor because, you know, maybe you're making a couple million dollars a year bootlegging liquor, and this guy comes to check on you and he's making three grand a year. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Maybe he'll take couple hundred bucks to yeah. look the other way. A you know? couple hundos in the old G-string. Yeah. Just uh, turn around. Pretend you didn't see what you saw. Pull out that whale tail and let me stuff this in it. You know? <laughs> Just get that bill, put it in that fucking G-string, pop it a little bit, give him a kiss on the neck. Like, mm. <laughs> you didn't see a thing, baby. <laughs> He feels like kind of creeped out, like, fuck, I was going to take a bribe, but not sexual assault. This is, oh, this is weird. weird. It's weird. I kind of like it, but at the same time, I don't know. I got to go to church on Sunday and look at myself in the mirror every morning. I don't know how I feel about this shit. I tell my boyfriend when I get home. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Greg, it was the 1920s. You got to tell your platonic roommate when you get home what happened. That's what I meant. Yeah. No, it just saves on the bills. <laughs> yeah. Saves on the bills. And Uncle Steve, they've just been living together for 40 years. So, you know, they're just good friends. Really good friends. <laughs> they took that trip to Fire Island together. Members of Club Med. They always, they're such good dancers. They went through a lot in the Great War. <laughs> yeah. Always talking about diving into each other's foxholes. You know, just... Unbelievable. You know what? You always take it a step further, Christopher. I will once again rebuke you. Damn it. Is that a demerit? It's another demerit. It's another. 
Oh, wolf dick, mark it down, I guess. You're now going unpaid for this episode. Fuck! Sorry, bud. I get all the, the subway and audible money. Damn it. We haven't even talked about audible in like four episodes. <laughs> I can tell the audible subscriptions are waning. <laughs> <laughs> well, the 18th Amendment. It uh, had been clear that the states would also be responsible for enforcing the law. And at first, there were some states that went along with it. If you're arrested for being drunk in Vermont, you went to jail, unless you told the cops who gave you the liquor. Indiana gave train conductors and bus drivers the power to arrest anyone carrying alcohol on public transportation. Mississippi made it illegal to collect debts related to the purchase of alcohol, and Iowa banned the sale of Sterno, a canned fuel that hobos filtered the alcohol out of. Been there. Oh, you know. <laughs> I've been in the parking lot of Walgreens just down on a bottle of scope. Just trying to take the edge off the day, you know? Alcoholism, Greg, that's the, that's the punchline of my oh, joke. Oh, okay, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> Staring blankly. At first, most Americans didn't have to make do by sucking down some canned fuel alcohol, but rather relied on the good nature of bootleggers. And if you guys don't know, bootlegger, I think we've talked about it before, uh, it came from an old, real old term about guys who'd walk around, they had pints of liquor stuffed in their boot, and they'd walk up to you and they'd offer you a drink for like 50 cents. You could take a swig from the pint or the flask or whatever. And I always thought that was an interesting point from history, because that's such a weird fucking thing, like just taking drinks from strangers' boots, but that's where the term comes from. Interesting fact indeed. <laughs> That's the support I need, man. It keeps me going. <laughs> Men would sail their ships down to the Bahamas, where the import and export of liquor was still nice and legal. Then they'd load up and sail back to the U.S. coast. Once there, they'd set off the coast in international waters and put out price lists. Americans would boat out to them, buy their booze, and either drink it right there or take it home. These fleets of ships would become known as rum rows and would pop up all up and down the East Coast. Eventually, the Coast Guard would attempt to crack down on these smugglers, which led to them putting surplus Army V-12 engines in their boats, creating the first speedboats. Over in California, things looked pretty bleak for the grape growers in Napa Valley. Some growers ripped up their vines and planted prunes or apricots, but the ones who were patient made out like fucking bandits. See, in the Volstead Act, in an effort to appease small-scale fruit growers in the Midwest, Wayne Wheeler had made it legal for people to ferment fruit juice for personal consumption in their own homes. The head of each household was allowed to make up to 200 gallons a year, while this was intended for those yokels that drank ladlefuls of cider from a barrel in their kitchen, people soon realized that it also allowed them to make wine. As a result, the Californians couldn't sell grapes fast enough, and by 1924, the price of a ton of grapes had soared to $325, which would be about $6,500 in 2022. What was it before? No point of reference. I don't know. $3 a pound, man. That's like fucking Tom Thumb prices. Can't afford that shit. Just got Lucille Ball out there fucking stomping her fucking <laughs> ass off. 
<laughs> but it's 2022. It's hot as fuck now. She's tits out. Yeah. Stomping, slipping everywhere. Titties in the wine. Pandemonium. Mm. Bedlam. Lucille Ball. Looking all purple. Like old Veruca Salt and Willy Wonka. <laughs> no, it was mm. the other chick. I don't, I don't care. Salt. I don't care. Hold on, was, I'm almost there. I'm almost there, Chris. <laughs> it was the gum-chewing chick. And she ex- <sighs> ex- ex- every part of her expanded, Greg. I suddenly don't care. I'm done. More juice for the squeezing, that's what I say. You're disgusting. I thought, <laughs> hey, you couldn't get more disgusting than me pretending to jack off to a weird amalgamation of old-timey <laughs> shit. <laughs> and it, oh. Yes, pretending. Yeah, we didn't have to take a break for you to clean up. Mm. Wolf Dick doesn't look horrified right now. There's one beady eye. Another loophole in the Volstead Act allowed for the production of wine for religious reasons. One grower became the official vintner of several Catholic dioceses and became filthy, stinking rich. In the Jewish community, there was an explosion of men claiming to be rabbis so that they could procure ridiculous amounts of wine. One rabbi that presided over a small congregation secured 5,000 gallons by adding deceased members of his temple to the membership roster. That's how the Democrats won the election, am I right? (sighs) Hit me up in the comments, fellas. Of course... This chicanery did very little to slow the dramatic increase in anti-Semitism that was occurring during this time in America. And, uh, this is another example of anti-Semitic bullshit. Like, old Billy fucking Johnson does this shit, no big deal. But once Hiram does it, boom. It's a Jewish thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's such a... Throughout history, this happens so many fucking times where we're like, hey, Jewish people... Take the jobs we don't want. Like, run this distillery. Run these banks. Wait a minute. Wait a second. The Jews control the banks and distilleries. How did that happen? (laughs) You guys are doing this too well. What in the fuck? (laughs) Yeah. Y'all are the ones that killed Jesus, right? All right. Yeah, I knew it. I knew it. Well, now that they've gotten smart and they don't call them Jews anymore, they call them globalists, so they can get away with it a little better. God. (laughs) That is the sad truth. Unlike the fruit juice and sacramental wine exceptions, the third major exception to the Volstead Act allowed for the distribution of hard liquor as long as it was prescribed by a doctor. Physicians, including veterinarians and dentists, were allowed to write 100 prescriptions a month that allowed the patient to legally obtain a pint of liquor a week for about four bucks. Now, in 1917, the American Medical Association had ruled that alcohol had no medical therapeutic value. But, for some strange reason, by 1922, they'd decided that alcohol could be used to cure 27 different ailments, including diabetes, cancer, asthma, snake bite, and old age. <laughs> Interesting. A, a miracle drug, if you will. You live for fucking ever. Just start drinking. At this point, people were flooding into drugstores to get their legal booze, and naturally, businesses found ways to take advantage of that. Some, let's, let's call them drugstores, 
only filled one type of prescription, and they, they did so behind a bar with a brass rail. Distilleries found a new way to move their stocks of whiskey that had been sitting for years by simply changing the label. For instance, the hundred-proof old granddad still claimed it was bottled in bond, but just below that was written, unexcelled for medicinal purposes. And then you had people like Chicago lawyer George Remus, who took it a step further and purchased 14 distilleries, including Jack Daniels, and sold it all under the umbrella of his Kentucky Drug Company. He would also do a lot more unsavory things, and, you know, kind of some... Kind of some cool things, kind of some uncool things, yeah. which uh, we talked about in a Patreon-exclusive hangover, number 47. Give us money. Give us money. Give us money. Give us money. Which for $3 a month, you can hear that and many other stories. We haven't fucking pitched you yet. I know. Look at this. You're so far into the episode. You haven't been pitched <laughs> for shit. You know what? We, summer break? We know you guys don't want to be pitched on shit. Well, here it is, buried in the middle of a fucking episode. <laughs> Give us your money. It's like we gave you the free golf trip, the free stay at the condo, and we waited till day three to pitch the timeshare to you. Buy the $8,000 vacuum now. <laughs> the final loophole in the Volstead Act allowed for the manufacture of alcohol to be used in non-beverage products such as perfume, paint, varnish, antifreeze, and smokeless gunpowder. The law required that any alcohol used for these purposes be denatured, which meant adding a noxious substance to it before it could be sold. The enterprising mind soon figured out that it could be redistilled, flavored with some oil of juniper, diluted with a little water, and sold as gin that was, quote, Aged about the length of time it takes to get from the bathroom where it's made to the front porch where the cocktail's in progress. See? End quote. And I have a problem here with all the people that read this and take exception to it. They're like, oh yeah, the government poisoned all this industrial alcohol and a bunch of people died from drinking it. I'm like, yeah, well, they made alcohol illegal. Okay, I'm I'm sorry. You still... Mm-hmm took in alcohol and it killed you because some jackass took paint thinner and turned it into gin and it poisoned your ass. But, you know, I don't know how that's the U.S. government's fault at that point, besides making it illegal, which they shouldn't have done in the first place. But other than that, it was illegal. You knew what you're getting into. They bought their tickets. I say let them crash. That's from Airplane. Okay. A 50-year-old movie. (laughs) I mean, not quite that old, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> you love the old references. I'm fucking 70 years old, Greg. God damn it, I'm doing the best I can. You leave your 38-year-old <laughs> co-host just staring at you, <laughs> and you have to spell it out for me. Imagine these fucking 12-year-olds <laughs> listen to this bullshit. Well, I'm introducing them to culture. That's what I'm doing. They're okay. all... I'm listening to Beebs. I'm going to do the the whip, nay-nay. No, you what's this? You guys heard this? that new Lizzo, though? Yeah. Yeah, Lizzo, she's she's a thing. That's Harry Styles, number one song in America. Yeah, I know what's up. You guys seen that Machine Gun Kelly documentary? I have. 
<laughs> Wife made me watch it. What's up? What's up? <laughs> that was me dabbing. <clears throat> Double dab. Now let me tell you about Bullet, starring Steve McQueen, children. Gather around. <laughs> Fill up your vapes and hoverboards. <laughs> Put down your TikToks. It's time to learn. <laughs> All right, let's get back to this. Uh. <clears throat> Sorry, that's triple dab. I'm cool. <laughs> I'm cool. That's what all the cool people say. (laughs) Well, those loopholes in the Volstead Act, they were all for liquor. But if you're feeling bad for those poor hapless German beer brewers, you should know that they made out like fucking bandits too. At first, they sold near beer, which contained no alcohol. And it did well for a few months before people realized that, you know, they didn't really like to drink beer for anything other than the alcohol. It wasn't about the taste. I try and lie to myself every time. I pop a beer. I'm like, man, I I really enjoy this. This is this is really good taste in beer. Like, but if there was no alcohol, I would never fucking crack that thing. It would be so. Like I see when I tell people that don't drink whiskey or like bourbon, I'm like, man, this really uh, there's a lot of uh, vanilla notes in here. You (laughs) can taste the aging through the the caramel from the wood esters and all that. And they're like, yeah, you wouldn't drink that if it didn't have booze in it. I'm like, oh, no, fuck no. No. Of course not. I'd have a Coke. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, it should taste fucking awful if it didn't do what it did. What do you you mean? You know, before anybody gets judgy, the same thing with coffee. Coffee is trash. It tastes bitter. You know, you got to put like a thousand sugars and creams in it if you want it to taste good. But you get used to it, and you get used to the effects of it, and you're like, if it didn't have the caffeine, like, people who drink decaf are fucking psychopaths. What are you doing with your life? Okay, I will put my stand foot down right here. Okay. I love black coffee. That's that's how I'm drinking. Yeah. But if I'm having some after dinner, which I do occasionally, decaf, bro. And I, I just enjoy it. I enjoy it for what it is. Does it taste good? I don't know, but it's like drinking <laughs> tea. I just sit there and... Mm. Mm. Sorry, I'm getting a boner. <laughs> but yeah, back to these uh, German brewers. They're brewing this shit. It ain't got no alcohol in it. Poor. Poor the Germans. Mm-hmm. That's what we've said. Throughout this whole show. (laughs) Well, they too came up with a workaround in the form of malt syrup. Malt syrup was a canned product that was perfectly legal to sell, that when added to yeast and water, allowed people to make beer in their own home. They were doing half the work they used to and made just as much money. I mean, it was only like 2.5% alcohol. But it wasn't nothing. Oh, and have you ever known somebody who does homebrew? Oh my god, it's all they fucking talk about. I get it. You ma- you made beer in your bathtub, dude. I I get it. Okay, yeah, you got a bunch of bottles in your garage, and yeah, there's a little sediment at the bottom from the yeast and stuff. And no, no, no just try it, man. Just try it. It's just as good as anything you buy. It's fucking not. Okay, stop it. Stop it. It's not a personality trait. Okay, homebrewing is not a thing. 
that makes you a better person. It's just something you do, okay? <sighs> sorry, I just I have a lot of douchebag neighbors. I'm sorry. I'm changing my Christmas present to you. <laughs> you don't buy me anything for Christmas, you fucking asshole. Yeah, I know. That's why I was going to give you some bathtub fucking beer. <laughs> Not only did Prohibition do nothing to stop people from drinking, it fundamentally changed the way drinking was done. Before Prohibition, the idea of drinking and partying wasn't really a thing. You had drinks with food, or maybe you stopped at a quiet saloon and had a drink while discussing politics. My favorite subject. You're right, yeah. But now drinking was the whole reason people were going out. They'd cram into hidden bars, known as speakeasies, and get drunk just for the fun of getting drunk. Before Prohibition, no one ordered liquor by its brand name, but now it was a sign of your taste and elegance as well as a way to protect yourself from booze of a questionable origin. Although more often than not, the bartender just lied and gave the customer renatured bathtub gin. But the less than honest nature of the speakeasy owners led to the rise of the cocktail, as more and more customers asked for things like ginger ale or tonic water to be mixed into their subpar liquor. And the biggest change was now women were hanging out in bars, drinking right alongside the men, lending even more credibility to the party atmosphere. And this was a huge deal. Like, up until Prohibition, the saloon thing that everybody wanted to get rid of, it was very much a, a boys' club. Yeah. And now, in the, in the midst of women's suffrage and all that, there are these people there that are equal. They want to drink. They don't want to be the ones sitting at home just feeling the wrath of of when the husband goes out spends all the money mm -hmm. comes home he's abusive to her and the kids now you have all these younger ladies going out and they're going to the same places as the guys because they made it illegal now it's illegal for everyone guys and girls so they're going out they're doing the same things jazz music like they're this is the full speakeasy atmosphere you think yeah. of when you think of prohibition in the 1920s it's it's these girls and guys going out it's illegal we're gonna do it we're gonna have fun yeah and uh during women's suffrage this was a big part of separating that traditional role right yeah it's like an empowerment movement definitely we talked about that ken burns documentary Right at the beginning, you talk about guys going to saloons. That was their thing. You know, that's for dudes. Yeah, women were not allowed. Yeah, the guys would go there thinking, oh, I've worked all week. I've made money for my family. Time to go, you know, tie one on and have a good time. And then this changed it all because it became that party atmosphere, which now it's just so ingrained in all of us. Like the idea of, hey, I'm going out. I'm going to get drunk. That's a thing for us. Like, we don't even think about it as being, you know, something special or unique or, you know, uh, out of the ordinary. You just go out. You're going to a bar. Hey, I'm going to have a few drinks. I'm going to get buzzed, drunk, whatever. Have a good time. That was not a thing back then. For men or women, you were just, you, you had a purpose when you were drinking. And Prohibition made drinking the purpose. And it's so weird that that's become... 
so ingrained in us in the last hundred years where we can just be like, that's what I'm doing. What are you, what are you doing Friday night? I'm getting drunk, you know? That's right. my plan. Yeah, you know, that's my plan for the night. Whatever else happens, that's fine, but I'm getting drunk on Friday night. And that was yeah. not a thing before Prohibition. Our story isn't done, but I think that's a lot of it is probably what these people were trying to stop, they accelerated. They created, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Prohibition, surprise, surprise. It wasn't all rainbows and sunshine. Low-grade liquor made from wood alcohol poisoned and killed hundreds of people every year. It's the difference between ethyl alcohol and methyl alcohol. The latter being the the bad boy. Don't get sciencey on me. In Wichita, Kansas, a product known as Jamaican Ginger, or Jake, that was 80 proof and was sold in a 2-ounce bottle for 35 cents, poisoned so many people that the death of nerves in their hands and feet led to a shuffling walk known as Jake Leg. After the first few years of Prohibition, public intoxication and drunk driving arrests soared, as did cirrhosis death and hospitalizations for alcoholic psychosis. The Prohibition Department was powerless to stop any of this. Instead of going after big bootleggers, they went after small fish to drive up their arrest numbers. But these arrests almost never resulted in convictions. The federal courts were overwhelmed by the caseloads and soon had time to prosecute almost nothing else. Quite often, judges would line up 400 bootleggers at a time, have them all plead guilty at once, and then send them on their way after they paid very small fines. Soon, organized crime outfits, such as the one run by Al Capone in Chicago, took over the bootlegging business and wound up making billions of dollars a year by doing so. Violent crime soared, because after all, the bootleggers couldn't go to the police if someone ripped them off, and the national papers made celebrities out of the gangsters. But in the eyes of men like Capone, they weren't doing anything wrong. The people wanted liquor, he was selling it to them at a fair price, and they happily bought it. That's how the I feel about my butthole. Illegal... Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, the fact that it was illegal was irrelevant to everyone involved. Just like Just your butthole. Just like my butthole. <laughs> In 1927, the leader of the ASL and de facto leader of the Dries, Wayne Wheeler, died of a heart attack just weeks after his wife and daughter died in a fire. <laughs> Laugh track. <laughs> Without him, the ASL on the dries began infighting and struggled to come up with a way to save the abject failure that was prohibition. One side wanted to increase public education about the dangers of alcohol, and the other wanted stricter laws. In 1928, the strict law side won out when their representatives took over Congress. It turned out to be the undoing of prohibition. I meant to bring this up earlier when we were talking about education, because, you know, like they talked about how they did like three days of abstinence and stuff in schools. Do you think they had like the same thing where like these really muscular men came to their schools and ripped open phone books, like ripped them in half and crushed a bunch of cinder blocks and told you about Jesus and abstinence from alcohol like we had growing up with the sex thing? Did that happen to you? Oh, you didn't You didn't have that at your school? Where, like, these big fucking power for Jesus thing guys came and, like, 
Like, yeah, I can do this because I haven't had sex before I got married and rips a phone book in half. You didn't have that? Mm Mm-mm. Oh, shit. We had that, like, once a year at least. (laughs) It opened my eyes, Greg. Not to abstinence, but to uh, muscly men. No, I I just had a guy dressed up in a dog costume come to my school and tell me not to do drugs. But then I uh-huh. saw him in the boys' bathroom fucking my teacher. He's <laughs> a male teacher. Yeah. <laughs> it's real weird. I don't know why he brought that thing that looked like lipstick that attached to his dog costume. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. School was weird. He was he was fucking the football coach pretty hard. <laughs> Still in costume. <laughs> Take a bite of my asshole. The drives passed ridiculously tough laws that turned all Volstead violations from misdemeanors into felonies. First-time offenders could face up to five years in prison, plus a fine of $10,000. But hey, if you couldn't pay off the 10000 bucks, you could work it off at a rate of a dollar a day, which meant your debt would be paid off in a scant 27 years. In Michigan, Dries at the state level passed a law that made the fourth violation of the Volstead Act a mandatory life sentence. And uh, that resulted in the imprisonment of a 48-year-old mother of 10 who had sold two pints of liquor to an undercover cop. Whatever. That lady has some impulse control. Like, she needs to be locked up. She's going to do something terrible. Ten kids? Oh, my God. Oh, that's good. (laughs) Is her fourth arrest? (laughs) I was like, where is she going with this? (laughs) Tread lightly. Pretty much everyone thought these new laws were bullshit. And then things got worse for the drives when the stock market crashed in 1929. The drives were mostly Republican, and the public blamed them for the massive unemployment numbers and the crumbling economy. Income tax revenue plummeted, which allowed a group of rich white dudes, led by the heir to the DuPont fortune, to say, You know, we had a lot more money when we were taxing liquor. Also, I would have fallen gay love with a wrestler and then murder him. (laughs) (laughs) It's a different heir to the DuPont fortune. I'm sorry, guys. Way down the line. (laughs) What was the name of the movie? Foxcatcher. There you go. Of course, those dudes were mostly pissed about the high tax rate on the wealthy and were hoping to get rid of income tax altogether, but that didn't mean that, uh, you know, they were wrong or that people thought they were wrong. No, and every time they landed on that square on Monopoly, they just paid the 200 bucks because that was cheaper. Like, this is how it should work. That's, that's, you know, we should figure this shit out. Like, why are the wealthy paying taxes? And then we did work it out to where... They don't have to do that anymore. Like, you own Amazon, you own Tesla, whatever. It's fine. Don't pay taxes. We, we'll take care of you, buddy. And that's, that's how it should be, Greg. Chris is not bitter. <laughs> I want to stress that. Just because I paid more taxes than Jeff Bezos last year. No, I don't, I'm not upset about that. You know, it's fine. It's fine. We're all doing our part, right? <laughs> I'm going to kill myself. You heard it here first. He's fine. Yep. <laughs> in 1930, 
the wet Democrats won control of Congress, and in 1932, Franklin D. Roosevelt ran for president with a promise to repeal the 18th Amendment and end prohibition once and for all. By the time Roosevelt won the election in a landslide, the ASL was flat broke and could no longer afford to fight for prohibition. The 21st Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which repealed the 18th, was passed on February 20th, 1933. This time, ratification was not left to the state legislatures, but to the people of the states. It took less than nine months for the people to vote to ratify the 21st Amendment and end prohibition. Finally. Mm. In the end, prohibition will eventually go down in history as a funny little blip in the larger tale of a nation. But at the end of it, who drinks, what we drink, and the way we do it were changed forever. And Americans showed that when we all work together and really, really focus on getting something done, there is absolutely nothing that can stop us from getting shit-faced. End of story. Woo! We did it. We told the tale of Prohibition. You know, people have been telling us for three years to do this story because, you know, we do a, a drinking slash history podcast and, you know, we thought, no, it's a stupid fucking story. But then we researched it. <laughs> we said, you know That's what? an awful idea. You're a fucking idiot. Thanks for listening. We love history. We love drinking. You're fucking stupid for <laughs> suggesting that. That is hey, 90%. Do you see what this guy said? <laughs> yes. Don't give him any credit. It's all it's a our great idea. idea, but fucking, we got to wait a couple of years now. <laughs> That's pretty much what we did. But you know what? After researching it, looking into it, it's a crazy fucking story. It changed the way we do things fundamentally, and uh, can't be gladder that we did it. Just can't be <laughs> gladder. Can't be gladder. It's a word. Okay. It was the right. The right word at the right yes. time. What is the perfect word? Okay. <laughs> As you can tell, listener, we have been drinking while we talked about prohibition. So if you didn't learn anything, you should know that it failed fucking fantastically. But there are some things we left out of the story, and we're going to tell you right now. We call those the fast facts. Fast fact number one. One seemingly unrelated pre-prohibition law that pissed off the brewers was the creation of workers' compensation. These laws made it so that employers were financially responsible for injuries sustained by their workers, and as a result, many of America's largest companies forbade their employees from drinking, even on their off time. Fast fact number two. Another big change that came from Prohibition was the definition of international waters. When Prohibition began, the law stated that U.S. laws could be enforced for up to three miles off the coastline. But because rum runners made it so easy for boats to come to them and pick up booze, they demanded that the British agree to change it to a distance of 12 nautical miles, as it remains to this day. 
Fast fact number three. One federal judge, John F. McGee, estimated that 80% of the cases brought before him were related to prohibition and were unprosecutable. When it came to the crime of bootlegging, McGee wrote, quote, I thought I would end it, but it ended me, end quote. He then put down his pen and blew out his brains. Fast fact number four. The grape growers in California came up with something similar to the brewer's malt syrup when they invented vine glow, which was a brick of dehydrated grapes, stems, and skins. Unlike malt syrup, the makers of vine glow at least pretended, quote unquote, their product was innocent when they instructed the users to dissolve it in water to make grape juice, but to under no circumstances. Store that grape juice in a dark cupboard for 20 days, because then that juice would become wine. Alright, well, we thank you guys for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed the tale of Prohibition. Very interesting. I did not think it would be that cool, but here we are. Just all fucking blown away by the brilliance of HPH. God, we're good. (laughs) We're so fucking good. And if you like what you heard, you can go to hunterproofhistory.com. You can find, you know, some links to old episodes, some bio information, but most importantly, a link to our Patreon, where for just $3 a month, you can get some old episodes, early access to new episodes, and like, what are we up to, 60 hangovers? These many episodes we do just for Patreon listeners? I don't 60. Know, like a million. It's so much good shit. But. If you don't feel like contributing, we understand. We hate you, but we understand. <laughs> you can still find us at 100ProofHistory on all the social media platforms. We like to post about our stories we're talking about, some memes, some information. Good shit, so follow us there. That's all I have for myself, the co-host of this show. For Wolf Dick, our esteemed Involute producer... Dan Dan, the intro man who came, said his piece, and then he ran. We say thank you. And we ask Maine, sexy mustachioed host Gregory, what else? Sometimes I feel I've got to run away? No, you're, you're supposed to be the bum bum. Bum bum. Kiss a man on the mouth. <laughs> All right, goodbye. Whatever. Bye. <laughs> well, the Volstead Act did allow for people to keep the alcohol. Ooh, slow down, you fucking idiot. God, I suck at podcasting. We took a month off, lost all of it. Wow, that was quick. I like that. <laughs> it was a little quick. No, perfect. You got <laughs> okay. it. You got it, dude. That's okay. what I want. <laughs> okay. I don't know. I don't know what the people want. I don't either. I'm 41 years old. I don't know what fuck anybody wants. I don't care about them either. Apparently, it's cool to wear socks with sandals now. And I'm like, no, I was doing that in the fucking 90s and people made fun of me. How much longer are we doing this stupid podcast? I don't know. Until you knock up your wife. So get the job fucking done. Now, all those loopholes. Why is my brain no worky? What the fuck? (laughs) Find a loophole. The pro. Fuck. Why does this always happen right at the end?
It's like a time at fucking perfect. Stupid fucking idiot. You've been drinking all of like four hours. <laughs> no, I'm just trying to figure out how I'm going to read it. It's a long sentence. No. The whole last point is a single sentence. It's one sentence. <laughs> yeah. It's a man sentence. It is a man sentence. That's what I got. To call me in the, the monastery. Shut up! Forbade their employees from drinking, even on their off time. Uh, oh. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> That's what I'm telling you. You alright? Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs>